Good morning, friends, and welcome to another moment in Black History Moments with Bo. I sincerely hope this day finds your life flowing in the direction for which you desire it to flow. Some people question why I named this program Black History, and it is because it is about black people. People might think that I hate white people, and that cannot be further from the truth. What I hate is racism. And once I educate myself and learn to love myself, they become irrelevant. You see, above all else, we are Africans. Our ancestors are on the continent of Africa. That is why we are considered African Americans, not American Africans. African Americans first, because we are that. And if we are going to be masters of our destiny, we must be masters of the ideal that influenced that destiny. Since we're semi-quarantined here, I spent the weekend watching football, and something came to mind that I decided to share with you. So let's slip into darkness, and let's talk about the Wyoming 14. It had been nearly 50 years since the University of Wyoming banished 14 black players from its football team. And this is all that Tom Berman, the now athletic director at the university, could think about as he guided his car from the Denver airport back to campus. You see, he had just came from Orlando, where he watched the players known as the Black 14 accept an award and explain how they had been kicked off the team in 1969 after trying to ask their coach if they could wear black armbands during an upcoming game. You see, they wanted to show solidarity against racism at a time when civil rights protests were common on the nation's college campuses. Wow, 50 years from the Black 14 to Colin Kaepernick. But with the same meaning and the same agenda. But instead, they were immediately banished. I could only imagine the turmoil they must have found their lives in at this point. 
Some transferred away from Wyoming, and others left school never to return and never to receive a degree. These guys were villainized throughout the whole state as insubordinate and ungrateful, and most of the fans sided with their white coach and his strict no-protest policy. Over beers at the hotel bar, Berman listened as the players, now in their 60s and 70s, talked of keeping tabs on their former team's wins and losses, even though most had not been back on campus in decades. So as he drove back to campus in 2017, Berman decided he had to do something. And as it turns out, the school's president, Lori Nichols, had been thinking the same thing, working to educate herself on the Black 14 scandal, which remained the most divisive incident in the school's 132-year history. Nichols was quoted as saying, we can't go back and change history, but there are times when you can come back and have an appropriate response to it. These had been elite players who had been recruited from across the country, and this had came at a time when institutions across the nation were re-examining their sins of the past. Heated debates had arisen about the presence of Confederate monuments in town squares. Universities have agreed to pay reparations for their use of slave labor in their early years. Consensus in Laramie has softened over time. When the anniversary of the Black 14 would come up, students and faculty felt shame for how the players had been treated. Nichols reached out to John Griffin, then 69 and living in Denver, one of the only former cowboys who had been to campus in recent years. It was the first time that a university president had ever reached out to us, said Griffin, who in May 2018 drove to campus for a meeting. Two other Black 14 players joined by phone for a two-hour discussion. The university wanted to host an on-campus dinner. The players thought they were owed more because this was just a dinner, and it was not enough, Griffin said. You see, it was three nights before game day when the black players gathered around their dorm room bunks, and the campus was buzzing with protests. A campus active group, the Black Student Alliance, had announced a boycott of the upcoming football game between the University of Wyoming and Brigham Young University. 
Students wanted to protest the Utah school run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because of a Mormon policy that had forbid black parishioners from becoming clergy. The group had asked the black football players to join their fight. The, the players were skeptical because similar protests of BYU in the past had not led to much change. Then Tony McGee, a star defensive lineman, interjected. When the team had traveled to Provo the year prior, BYU players spit on him and took cheap shots at his knees. Referees and even his own coach had ignored his complaints about racist taunts. When Wyoming's black players walked back to the locker room after the game, someone turned on the field sprinklers, drenching them. I don't have a problem with Mormons, so McGee said. I have a problem with my treatment on the field. The players decided not to join the Black Student Alliance protest, but rather to stage their own, with each of them wearing a black armband with a white 14 on the side. It was meant as a warning. If you mess with one of us, you've messed with all 14 of us. But first they decided they would talk to Coach Eden. Eden had led the Cowboys to national prominence, winning the Sun Bowl after the 1966 season and going undefeated in the regular season in 1967. The success came in part because of Eden recruiting. He was willing to recruit black high school students at a time when many major NCAA programs had yet to integrate. But he banned any political activity or protests. By the time the team's black 14 players arrived at the field house to ask for permission to wear their armbands, Eaton was waiting for them. Tony Gibson, a junior running back, said, the only words that we could get out of our mouths was, Coach, we came here to talk to you about, and before he could finish, Eden said, I can save you a lot of time. As of this moment, you are no longer members of the Wyoming football team. According to the players, Eden went into a racist diatribe telling them to go back to their fatherless inner-city homes and live off public benefits. Eden later denied it, but remembered yelling and telling the players to shut up. I was numb. I thought it was a dream, said Ted Williams, a running back who was among the players kicked off the team. I couldn't talk. I opened my mouth and no words came out. Most of the players were recruits out of junior colleges or highly trotted prospects from suburban high schools. In interviews, they said they had rarely experienced 
racism of any kind in their hometowns. Eaton would later claim that bringing the armbands with them to the meeting, the players had violated his long-standing no-protesting policy. If they were so serious about their grievance, why didn't they all go to the Mormon church directly? This is what Eden told the Denver Post in 1982. They were biting the hand that feeds them. Demonstrations have no place in athletics, not while you're on scholarship, he said. You're trading your athletic ability for a chance to get an education. That slapped the state of Wyoming in the face. The governor raced to campus in an attempt to broker a compromise, but Eaton refused to attend a meeting with the players. Early the next morning, the university announced it was standing by the decision of its coach. When the team took the field that weekend, the mostly white crowd marched to into the stadium wearing gold paper armbands that read, We Support Coach Lloyd Eden. Wyoming soundly defeated BYU, then topped San Jose State the following week, but then crippled by the loss of many of their best players the Cowboys started losing. As the losses accumulated, Eaton's support began to evaporate. The Cowboys dropped their last four games of the season and unable to coax top recruits to an embattled program, won just once the next year. Eaton was run out and ultimately moved to a secluded section of Idaho where he vowed to never return to campus, a promise he kept until his death in 2007. Well, my friends, that music tells me that it is that time again. So I leave you with this thought. Whoever is in control of the hell in your life is your devil until next time my friends it has been my honor 